Hello and welcome to another episode of Nonprofit Vision with Gregory Nielsen. This is Greg Nielsen. I'm the president and CEO of Nielsen Training and Consulting, where we work with nonprofit leaders and organizations uh, in areas including governance, strategy, leadership development, and performance management. Uh, today, on today's episode, we're going to be um, engaging a topic that has uh, garnered a lot of discussion, positive and negative, in recent years. We're going to be talking about donor-advised funds, and I'm pleased to be joined today by my guest, Chuck Brown. Uh, Chuck is the founder of Orion Advising um, and has a significant amount of experience um, in the past working with donor-advised funds. So, Chuck, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, thanks so much for having me, Greg. Uh, it's great to have you with us. Um, and if you could, maybe before we begin, tell us a little bit about your company, a little bit about Orion and what you do there. Yeah, sure. So Orion Advising is a consultancy uh, that works with both startup and early stage uh, social entrepreneurs, uh, as well as investors kind of looking to get into, uh, to apply an impact lens uh, to their portfolios and their investment philosophy, uh, more or less for the first time. And uh, the reason I Founded Orion uh, just uh, just a couple of months ago now uh, was because I really wanted to get uh, back closer to the work of supporting uh, social entrepreneurs. I really do believe in this uh, that these kind of um, a different way of doing both business and nonprofit um, is definitely possible, and that there are a lot of uh, folks out there with amazing ideas who are trying to be uh, trying to push the envelope as well as find ways to uh, really sustain themselves and, and create more autonomy in the work that they're doing, um, have less dependency uh, on funders um, in order to set the direction, and uh, and that this is. Uh, a model for being more inclusive in, in terms of not having uh, beneficiaries to say uh, per se to their programs of more kind of incorporating those folks and finding a way for them to have their voices heard to have collective ownership uh, over the, um, the, the efforts that they're creating um, and to uh, to create more equity amongst those folks and um, so yeah when you're working with organizations um, what are some of the some of the issues that are presented in that social entrepreneurship space for your clients yeah, I mean, I think uh, a lot of it comes down to two things. It comes down to, to strategy and, and it comes down to funding. Um, so I think a lot of folks who, um, you know, they have an idea, they have a concept, um, but there's a lot of tension, I think. So if you, you want to get in the social enterprise space, you know that you kind of, you're thinking about how can I uh, do something uh, that creates social environmental impact uh, through some kind of profitable business model uh, while still staying true to my mission and to be able to partner with folks who who also respect that and don't try to uh, push me one direction or another. And I think that even in this social impact space, you see a lot of the institutional funders are really pressing for scale, right? They want to work with folks who are thinking on the global level, they're, they're going to affect millions, if not, you know, over a billion people on issues around, you know, the sustainable development goals. And I think while that's uh, certainly noble and uh, and, you know, the scale of these problems does require some thinking like that. Um, it's, it's also pushing out a lot of folks who are, they're just getting started and they're just trying to figure out how to make what their, their efforts are more sustainable on kind of a regional and more local level. And I think that's particularly true, uh, particularly true of these entrepreneurs who are uh, people of color and women, LGBTQ, coming from more marginalized communities who uh, are really trying to think about how do I actually just build enterprises that, that really support my community first uh, and figure out how to make that work. Um, before you start talking to me, you know, about, about scaling this out across the country and across the world. That's right. And you've been on the other side of the table, too. You've been um, on the funder side. Was it at Silicon Valley Community Foundation? Yeah, that's right. And what was your role there? So I was a development officer uh, for two years at Silicon Valley uh, Community Foundation, 2016 to 2018. 
and uh, and yeah, that uh, that opportunity was very interesting to me. I had just uh, wrapped up uh, or had to wind down a social enterprise that I was working on uh, with some business partners, and very curious about kind of what things looked like on the other side of the table. You know how a lot of folks were making their their decisions in terms of uh, you know because and we're talking about donor advised funds here today, right? And there's a lot of people doing some very creative things with that. You know, it's a very dynamic vehicle, and as a, yeah, I was just very curious to see. Okay, well. If I can start talking to these folks more and find out what really motivates them, I can I can learn more about how this uh, this kind of movie is money is uh, moving about the world. And, no, you're right. I mean, a lot of nonprofit leaders haven't had the experience of working on that funder side of the table. Um, so I guess w- what I'd be curious about is is what was your uh, perception going into the community foundation um, about the role of development, the role of the community foundation, and maybe how did the reality either either match or not match that perception going in? Yeah, great question. So it's, it's funny because you know, going into Silicon Valley Community Foundation, kind of when I was applying for the job, I had never heard of SBCF before, and to find out that it was the largest community foundation. Uh, in the world, right, as they like to talk about in terms of assets under management, in terms of the funds that they manage, in terms of, you know, uh, uh, the grant making that they're doing. I, I, was, uh, I was shocked. I mean, I've been working in nonprofit social enterprise stuff my, my whole career. Um, and, uh, but, you know, these are not, they're not the group that you hear um, underwriting NPR or kind of sponsoring a lot of high profile events and, uh, and convenings right. and things like that. They um, generally don't get involved in those types of things. So, so that was kind of my first impression was like, wow, how come I've never heard of these uh, folks before? Um, and then getting on the inside, it was a very quick kind of uh, uh, process and, uh, you know, demanding. And but, uh, you know, there was there was also, you know, there's an impression going in that it's definitely a very tough gig at being the front door uh, for the community <laughs> foundation and working with the uh, just the scale and volume of the donors that, that come through there. And I think what I quickly realized was that, uh, you know, uh, when we talk about development offices in a nonprofit context, we talk about fundraisers, right? You're, you're going out, you're advocating for a cause, you're trying to encourage folks to, uh, to give to that cause and to really, you know, uh, create change, you know, through their, through their philanthropy. And this job was much more of a sales job, you know, that like we, had, we had a suite of charitable vehicles to offer donors from a donor advised fund to uh, you know, corporate advised funds. So we do, you know, setting up corporate foundations uh, to scholarship funds, which are very, you know, unique vehicles. And then some of these other kind of like, you know, non-advised funds. And if you want to set up an endowment or if you're a nonprofit, you know, if you want to set up an investment fund. So these, all these different, you know, basically um, uh, sales channels right, that, that we were, we were operating in. And it was, it was, a, it was very much, um, uh, I think a surprise to see that this is not, this is not really a, fundraising job you know this is a sales job and, and I am I'm a salesman that's a, and that's a great point because I think many many nonprofit leaders approach fundraising you know we're, we're used to developing a case for support we're used to tying it to a mission and a community goal um, I guess what is that door opener um, when you're at the community foundation did you know is it um, is it about investment? Is it about return? What's the, I guess, what's the hook there? Yeah, I mean, there was, there'd be a few different things we would touch on in terms of, you know, pitching these to potential donors. I think, uh, I think A, number one really came down to convenience. 
the fact that it was uh, the paperwork was very minimal in terms of setting up these funds, uh, the timeline for moving even uh, quite complex uh, assets, right? So, and a lot of the um, the value we had to offer for folks, and, and certainly SVCF was ahead of the game on almost every uh, way on this level, is being able to turn things like uh, you know real estate and artwork and uh, cryptocurrencies and you know, very different, you know, uh, you know, private, private shares, right? Like pre IPO stock was the big one, right? Like, so, so when, uh, folks like, uh, you know, Zuckerberg and, and Reed Hastings and some of these folks that have been, you know, talked about, you know, being high profile donors working through SVCF, um, I think just the, the skill set and the infrastructure that we have built in order to turn almost any kind of asset into a charitable, uh, uh donation, right. And something that could be then, you know, um, uh, made liquid and then allowed for, for grant making was a big one, especially for, you know, certainly the wealthiest donors. Um, but on, so on a day-to-day, you know, basis, the, the convenience of it um, and the fact that, uh, you know, if you were to compare, you would talk about this a lot, right? That, so SBCF, we're a community foundation. So when you look at the fees that you're paying, right? And so you're paying a percentage of the, you know, the assets that the, Companies managing for you, as well as a part um, for the investment management fee, and uh, that that's going to support you know the work that we're doing in the community, right? To work on the on housing crisis, to work on education, and th- things of that nature in uh, in some of the Bay, San Francisco Bay Area counties, and so that you know we tried to uh, really um, lean on you know as opposed to well if you're going to go to Fidelity or Schwab or some of these other kind of commercial providers you know they're not they're not doing that they're not using right. your your money to do good work uh, you know out the right. community and that's why you should work with us and so one of the vehicles the vehicle we wanted to talk about today is the donor advised fund for those who may not be aware um, just at a really high level of what a donor advised fund is and how it functions um, could you maybe give us just a quick overview yeah sure I think the most clear-cut way I've seen other folks, you know, talk about it is it's, it's basically a charitable checking account. So if you, you go to the bank, you, you know, you open up a, an account um, and usually, you know, you're just, you're just putting, you know, straight up cash into there. And so, and as I talked about, you can, you can give cash uh, and put it directly into this, into the fund, but you can also uh, give real estate or, you know, private, private stock, public, you know, stock, thing, you know, a, a pretty wide variety of things uh, and it, you can turn it into cash. And then that uh, that is becomes instantly it's a charitable donation, right? So as soon as you you make that gift, you create your account or the donor advised fund. Um, you immediately then are able to recognize you know maximum uh, uh, tax benefits of, of giving to a public charity, um, and uh, then you can then use your donor advised fund uh, to make grants to nonprofits, um, kind of anytime uh, you please. So just like kind of you know, being able to, you don't get a checkbook, you know, but kind of writing a check out or just, you know, you call your advisor or there's an online platform. You have a nonprofit you want to give money to. You say, here's the nonprofit. Uh, here's the amount I want to give. And then um, you kind of initiate the grant process. And uh, yeah, so that's, that's so as, basically As I understand it and based on what you said, so if I'm a donor and I open up a donor advised fund with $10,000, I get that immediate tax benefit in year one, whether I distribute that money to a nonprofit, whether a dollar gets to the nonprofit sector that year or not, I've got, I've received that tax benefit in year one. That's right. Okay. Um, 
we've heard a ton about donor advised funds. It seems like in the past couple of years, what do you attribute the growth of the donor advised funds? And, you know, when you look at the literature there, you know, Fidelity and others are growing, um, you know, thousands of donor advised funds each year. Um, what do you attribute that growth to? Yeah, I mean, they're just uh, all, you know, I'll go back to kind of what I was saying earlier is that they're just very easy to set up. So I think just, just the, the, the low barrier to entry as opposed to, let's say, um, starting a private foundation, which is uh, uh, significantly more complicated in terms of incorporating. Uh, you need to have, you know, higher staff to manage it. Um, it can become, you know, more costly and more regulated. A donor advice fund, you can essentially do almost exactly the same things, except that you have, you know, you have a staff at the community foundation or fidelity or something, you know, taking care of all of the uh, the administrative work for you, so you don't need to worry about any of that, um, and it costs less, you know, to you on an annual basis to to uh, keep administering that fund, and you know, then I think folks like me who, you know, we do very proactive outreach to this group of professional advisors, so CPAs, uh, wealth managers, estate planning attorneys, all of the folks, right, who create that, this ecosystem, uh, particularly around uh, wealthier folks, folks with access to a lot of uh, uh, privilege, um, who uh, lean on these folks to help them make financial decisions and, and long-term decisions about their estate and their, their family and, and all sorts of things. And, uh, and us, you know, going out to them, meeting with a regular basis saying, hey, did you know about donor advice funds, right? Did you know that, you know, your client can maximize their benefits in a given tax year by opening this fund up? Um, do you know, you know, that you could, they could give again, any kind of highly appreciated asset uh, and put it in here in order to maximize those benefits? Um, so really us, you know, folks, we're all, everybody's doing this, right? And this, this, this very proactive outreach to this, the whole cottage industry of professional advisors telling them that this is a tool that your clients, you know, need to know about, and that this is going to be, you know, a huge benefit for their uh, their long-term financial goals, which which you, you know, are obligated to help them uh, achieve. So I can see a lot of uh, a lot of folks benefiting from donor advised funds. So if you are a a financial advisor, it's a it's a piece of um, doing your job to effectively advise your clients, maximize their wealth from a community foundation standpoint. They're obviously um, making some money off of the fees, et cetera. The donors are getting a tax benefit. Um, when the system works well, how are donor advised funds effectively deployed in the community? You know, it really comes down to how involved the donor usually was at the, at the front end of the process, right? It's not that a lot of these folks who maybe they, they open up a donor advised fund kind of under pressure at the end of the fiscal year. And they just feel like, okay, I, I haven't thought out where I wanted to give this money away to. I'm just going to open a fund now and think about it later. Um, those folks can still end up engaging with, uh, with a philanthropy advisor from either, um, you know, inside the institution where they're managing their fund or from, from outside. There are lots of great uh, consultants, right. That help with that work to really find where your passion is and, um, and to create like a real mission around your giving. And so the folks who actually embrace that, actively seek it out and make time, you know, to engage with those folks. And then they're, they're actively giving, they're thinking about their fund, they're thinking about the issues, you know, they want to have an impact on, you know, that, that is where um, the system can really uh, shine. Uh, absolutely. But, um, but never, 
nevertheless, there have been um, many critiques of donor advised funds, and I, I, your article, um, you know, that that I saw in Inside Philanthropy um, on Zombie Philanthropy was was one of the one of the foremost articles that I've seen. Um, so I'd like to get into some of those critiques and just get your perspective on it. Um, one of the critiques that I've heard is around the lack of regulation. Can you maybe talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, there's really hardly, I mean, there are hardly any regulations around, you know, donor advised funds in, in general. I think the, um, just the, the nature of it in terms of, again, there, there are additional benefits around kind of a, a lack of transparency, which allows a lot of donors to maintain their anonymity around their giving, which in and of itself is not necessarily a bad thing. I think we can respect to a degree, especially in this in this era where, um, you know, with the internet and social media that, you know, uh, it's so easy to be kind of swarmed and attacked for, uh, if, especially if you're making this some kind of public gift to something you really care about. So to a certain degree, that's important. But on the financial side, it is just, it is far more difficult to kind of track exactly uh, how the money, how money is moving around from somebody's kind of personal estate uh, through a, a donor advice fund sponsor uh, into the fund itself, and then from the fund to wherever its kind of final destination may be, um, which, uh, you know, more and more, and I think other folks are, are more, um, more sophisticated knowledge on this, can move into more kind of, you know, political uh, activities. Um, and it's just very difficult to track where that is. And I know a lot of folks who have been trying to raise flags around donor advice funds for years, too, are, are you know, a lot of... Um, uh, the defenders of this practice talk about how donor advised funds actually give out more on kind of a, an annualized basis than than private foundations do. The kind of that minimum five percent, um, and that really, when you look at donor advised funds, they tend to give out more, and SBCF gives out more, and some of these are. But it's quite difficult to track to to verify those numbers um, again because there's no you know regulatory framework built around uh, creating transparency there. Um, so when you know, for for example, and at the foundation, you know, if folks decide that they don't want to work, they didn't want to work with us anymore, or they found another sponsor or for whatever reason wanted to move the money, it's not like when you go from one bank to another, you're doing a wire transfer, or you're just saying, hey, you know, cut me a check, I'm going to take it over to this other bank. Um, you you request a grant, and you you can grant out the entire amount of the fund, and then you move it to another institution. And then that goes down as a grant, right? And that gets goes down in the Given USA report, and that goes down into the impact report. And so, so huge amounts of money can get moved in a particular year, just going from one donor advised fund to to another, or going from a donor advised fund to a, a private foundation. And uh, and it's very difficult to actually track um, when those things are are happening. Um, and and yeah, and, and it's kind of for my part. What's really problematic too is that you you see then these reports and it kind of gives the the idea that oh well philanthropy is it's at the level it's always been we're still like two percent of GDP and it's still moving out there but but it's not it's really not it's just kind of you're just shuffling of the cards here um, and in fact it, it would seem to me the way the fees are structured the community foundation obviously making its money off of the assets under management it almost seems like there's a reverse incentive to not grant out additional donor advised fund dollars, keep those under the management of the community foundation. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's really hard to, 
avoid that argument, right? You, you understand on a conceptual level, you know, the, the business model here, it makes sense. We're going to take a percentage off and that, you know, helps us, you know, cover our costs and manage the fees and whatnot. But um, when you, I, you know, I think in terms of the institution that I was a part of, and again, what these reports kind of tout, it was about this incredible accrual of assets, right? We talked much more about how big the foundation was getting, how many, you know, donations were coming in, not, not nearly as much about money going out. And it's, it's just hard to say that because of the, the, you know, financially, the institution is so reliant on these asset-based fees uh, in order to continue growing and to, um, uh, you know, continue its, its, its mission, basically, that there is a strong disincentive um, to, to actually giving uh, the money out. And, and then um, even if you were going to give the money out, you know, for someone like a community foundation that, as you, as you mentioned, has endowments for nonprofits and has funds existing for nonprofits, it would seem that there's an incentive to keep those funds under the same roof, so to speak. Yeah, certainly, certainly. Um, switching over to the flip side, though, some of the proponents of donor advised funds have talked about how um, it opens up philanthropy to a, to a much larger um, set of participants that it, um, I think the quote is that it democratizes philanthropy because sometimes you need as little as $5,000 to start a donor advised fund. How would you respond to, to some of those statements? Yeah. So, um, I, <laughs> I'm really, I'm glad you brought this up. And as I kind of said in the article, I think that this is, uh, definitely a, a big talking point within big philanthropy. Uh, this idea of democratizing, uh, you know, access to services like this. And, you know, I would just say um, that in, in an age, you know, where 40% of Americans uh, are living paycheck to paycheck and uh, they cannot afford a $400 emergency expense that that would put them underwater, put their family and home and, uh, and their education you know, at, at risk, that to say that, Ooh, we brought the uh, the barrier to entry down to five thousand dollars. You know, only like now, you know, this is really democratizing philanthropy. It's just, um, I just uh, uh, viscerally, you know, I just kind of re react to that and say because if you if you have if you have five thousand dollars to give away, whether or not it really ultimately helps you, um, uh, you know, write some, something off on your taxes at the end of the day, you are still amongst the most privileged people in this country. And, uh, and I think that, you know, maybe even for a lot of those donors, you know, they don't think, we had a lot of folks come in actually saying like, well, you know, I think I can only start a, you know, a $5,000 fund right now, or like, or I only have, um, you know, $75,000, so I'm just a small fund. Are you, are you gonna give me any attention? And it's just like, wow, you know, even from, from those folks' perspective, they, even though they really, they're kind of living in abundance, don't have that own sense of their own selves and how much they have to offer and, uh, uh, you know, what kind of impact, you know, that they could actually create uh, for folks. And, um, and I think that was actually reinforced um, internally uh, because, you know, you advertise services of, you know, here's what you get when you open a fund of a million or more, you know, and here's, Here's when the fees actually start going down, when you open a fund for 5 million or 10 million or 25 million. That's, you know, the, the fact that we were supposed to talk to folks, you know, about like how the fees will go down once they reach the scales. It's just, you know, it's just tried to avoid that as much as possible because it's almost, almost embarrassing to talk to people about, about that. But that was, you know, but those are the kind of folks that, 
that uh, these institutions are working with now. They're, they're working with those uh, types of resources. And that's really, you know, why we, we got to pay more attention to what's going on here. And I, I guess just piggybacking off of that, it just seems like all of the incentives with donor advised funds um, are tilted towards keeping the assets under management. I, I haven't heard a single um, incentive that you've discussed yet or, or that I've seen um, that, that incentivizes deploying those funds actively out into the community. Well, so let's talk about a little bit about the, the internal kind of business model, right, of SVCF. And, and you see this um, at, at a lot of other institutions, you know, as well. Um, and that if you do, if you open a fund, so I quoted that at $75,000, right? So if you came in at, at that level, you would actually be paired with a philanthropy advisor um, from the foundation who would be your point of contact to look for advice in terms of um, how to be strategic, you know, about your giving, mm -hmm. uh, to offer interesting um, nonprofits, you know, institutions that you might want to, to give to, and to really help you, you know, kind of build out plan. Uh, however, you know, I think because of the way the folks like me were trained and the kind of way that we operate, uh, we hardly ever had those conversations with donors on the front end. And in fact, many of the times, we didn't even really talk to the donors before they opened up the fund. You know, the, the, almost the whole conversation would be driven by one of their advisors who had basically, you know, taken it on because their donors had, you know, their clients had given them uh, the authority to say, hey, okay, you, you think this is a good decision, you know, for, for us financially, sounds good, help me get set up, just let me know, you know, when to sign. Um, and when the, when the folks are not engaged in, in thinking about their philanthropy coming into it, and we have no interest to share with the philanthropy advisors who are trying to get paired up with those folks, um, the whole thing kind of breaks down, right? There's, there's no, we're, we're, we're not setting up our own people for success who are supposed to help, you know, help the donor build out a strategy, man. They don't even really care. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be a real slog for them once they start managing these funds to try and get those folks' attention, let alone try to get them into, the, into a room, come and meet and have like a real conversation about the giving. Uh, to those folks' credit, I think they, you know, they really get after it and are passionate about their work and, um, and are certainly able to uh, evangelize some folks, you know, who are really interested in philanthropy coming in. But the, 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 whole, the whole model was set up such that um, we were arming them with very little information uh, going into, into that point, uh, uh, talking about the advisors. And we were not incentivized personally to, to dig into what a donor's philanthropic interests actually were because it was not relevant you know, to the job. And is that when, as you mentioned in the article, um, that's when you start to see some of those issues of amplifying inequality? Is that correct? Yeah. I mean, what I'll talk about just briefly there is that for those folks, right, who maybe haven't been thinking about philanthropy in a more comprehensive way and kind of the, the, all the interesting things they could be do doing with a donor-advised fund, typically when they do their giving, it's when people in their own kind of, you know, fairly elite circles are just reaching out to them to give to their local private school foundation or uh, their, you know, the alumni network at Stanford and, and Harvard and, you know, some of these, these other major, major institutions or to the local 
opera, things like that. All of the things that already uh, kind of benefit them, right? They're, they're, so all the giving and the potential they have to actually support basic social services, poor, you know, organizations led by poor and working class groups that could actually really help reverse uh, widespread in income inequality in this country. Um, they're not in those rooms. They're not at those galas. They're not at those uh, wine and cheese parties. You know, <laughs> they don't get a chance to talk to these folks and say, "Hey, you know, we could really use some use some support." But the folks who who have their ear, they do, and that's and that's what they're doing most of their giving in. So we've talked a little bit about about what donor advised funds are, some of the challenges, um, some of the point counterpoint there. Before we wrap up, I'm going to make you Chuck. I'm going to make you king for a day. <laughs> uh, if you were going to fix the system, if you were going to enact one or more uh, policies that would address some of the issues that you mentioned, what would you do? Yeah, so great. I, you know, it's a pretty tough question because I do think that nobody in particular here is to blame, right? And I, and I tried to really make that point, you know, clear in the article that this is definitely a systemic issue. And that I believe, I truly believe that for like the vast majority of folks don't see the role that they're playing in perpetuating what is now a system that's being abused, you know, at scale. Um, but because I think a lot of the folks, community foundation leaders, uh, certainly the heads of these, the charitable arms of all these financial institutions, Fidelity Schwab, Vanguard, et cetera, are not proactively engaged in what we, what we can do more. I feel like we have to change, you have to create legislation that says these funds, donor advised funds, have to have a payout rate. So donors have to think about what they want to give to as part, of the, as part of the deal. It's just part of the deal. You can't just give into these funds and walk away. We're not going to allow that anymore. You have to think where, from my perspective, at least 10% of this fund is going to go every year because all of these funds are invested, right? But, you know, you you can't be earning more of your investment than than you're giving out. It's just this is that is uh, definitely a pass to, to inequality, right? So so minimum ten percent needs to go out every year um, to to compel donors to think about it, and um, and that these these funds should only have a lifetime of, of I think a decade uh, at most, um, because just the, the the time the era kind of we're we're living in. Um, really demands that these folks rise to the challenge uh, of the moment. There is so much from, you know, kind of the, the shredding of our social fabric to climate change to, uh, you know, depletion of, of, of resources and, and xenophobia kind of going across the world. We need these folks to be proactive in the process. And so you can't treat these funds as your legacy anymore. This is not, this is not the legacy that you get to leave by doing this. You're, let your legacy be stepping up in this moment and giving as generously as you possibly can within a, a short time frame. You know, because we we need it. We all need it, um, and that and that includes the donors themselves. You know, this is really about our our collective liberation and how we can all kind of live in a in a world that's actually you know sustainable going forward. Chuck, I think that's a great way to great uh, point to wrap it up on. Uh, for those who may want to learn a little bit more about your work um, and uh, Orion and, and maybe get in touch with you, um, how can folks reach out to you? Yeah, so they can definitely go to the website. It's uh, orionadvising.com. 
uh, feel free to email me directly. Um, I'm Chuck at orionadvising.com. Uh, you know, look me up on LinkedIn. I'm, I'm always looking forward to connecting with folks, hearing ideas, uh, you know, pro and con, you know, what, whatever it is, um, please feel free to reach out and I'd love to engage in conversation. So folks can continue the debate online with you. Chuck, I really want to thank you for your time today and for sharing your wisdom, your experience um, in a really honest and candid way. I know I learned a lot today. No, thanks, Greg. Uh, thanks for, for having me here. And this has been another episode of Nonprofit Vision with Greg Nielsen. Um, if you are enjoying the podcast, um, if there are other guests that you would like to see on the podcast or other uh, topics you would like for us to address, please email me at at gregory at nielsenconsults.com that's n-i-e-l-s-e-n consults.com or if you're uh, enjoying the podcast would ask you to go to itunes submit a review for us that is always welcome and much appreciated uh, to learn a little bit more about our work at nielsen training and consulting go to www.nielsenconsults.com chuck thank you again thank you greg pleasure